Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. It's never easy to confront the loss of service members in combat. One of the most serious and saddest military responsibilities is communication with and support for the families of fallen service members. Army Casualty Assistance Officers, or CAOs, bear that responsibility as they provide a channel of information and support that runs both ways between the families and the Army. That job is hard enough, but what about when the service member is missing or taken captive? or when the captors are not a national military, but rather members of a violent extremist organization or criminal gang. Each additional layer of complexity intensifies the challenge and raises new questions about how the Army should envision the casualty assistance program going forward. That worst-case scenario, an American soldier taken captive by a VEO and held for years, leaving the family in limbo and stretching the experience and resources of the casualty assistance office, became real in the case of Bo Bergdahl, held by the Haqqani Network in Afghanistan from 2009 to 2014. Our guest today, Colonel Kevin Hickey, was the CAO who worked with the Bergdahl family and saw both the possibilities and the weaknesses of existing programs. As a member of the Army War College Class of 2022, Colonel Hickey now has devoted his strategy research project to the question of how to reorient Army planning and policy to be better prepared to deal with such situations. He joins us on A Better Peace to discuss his experiences, his research, and his ideas for the future. Colonel Kevin Hickey is a resident student in the Class of 2022 at the United States Army War College. Prior to his arrival at Carlisle, he was assigned to Joint Forces Headquarters, Idaho Army National Guard, where he served as the G1 Director of Personnel. His previous assignments have spanned both the aviation and adjutant general career fields. Colonel Hickey has deployed to Bosnia in support of S-412 and to Afghanistan as an AH-64 Apache company commander in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. And we are delighted to have him with us today. Welcome to A Better Peace, Colonel Kevin Hickey. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate you bringing me on to talk about this important subject. Sure. So, Kevin, how did you become a CAO? Well, two-part process. Uh, you have to be trained to become a casualty assistance officer and then, of course, be selected. And in my case, I was not the first casualty assistance officer for Private Bo Bergdahl. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a Sergeant First Class, an E-7, that was initially assigned uh, to support the family, both Bob and Janie, his parents. And uh, what happened during that is it was seen after about a month or two that it might not be working out well with who that CAO has to communicate with. Due to the rank inversion, most of the people the CAO was communicating with were majors that were working for the Human Resources Command at Fort Knox. And also something that most, some people probably don't know is that Bo's brother-in-law was an F-18 Navy strike fighter pilot stationed in Fallon, Nevada. 
And so having the E7 working with him was kind of contentious at some points. And so they decided with the complexity of the case and the people the CAO was working with to bring a more senior officer on board, kind of have that peer-to-peer relationship. And that's, that's when I got assigned. It was a few months into the actual case. Gotcha. And uh, what was, was the Bergdahl family your first assignment as a CAO? It was. It was. <laughs> it was my first assignment as a CAO. So I was on a list, uh, just like most units do, that we have to go through training. Uh, it's a two-day training put on by Human Resources Command, their Casualty and Mortuary Affairs Division, that talks about how to take care of families, how to notify them that their loved one was killed, and then also how to support them through that process afterwards of getting them the benefits, helping them set up the funeral, the services, so on and so forth. And so I went through that training for a few years, never got called, and, and this was my first time uh, providing that assistance. Right. And and obviously, Bergdahl was was not killed. Um, he was missing, and then, and then the Haqqani Network made clear that they had him. Um, but your training initially didn't deal with the prospect of what does it mean for someone? Because, well, let me take a step back. If he had been, if, if Bergdahl had been a prisoner of war taken captive by a, a, a another military, state-run military, there are processes for dealing with that, right? Through the, I guess, through the Red Cross and through other organizations. Definitely. That'd definitely be a different, uh, right. different uh, thing we're looking at. I, I focused, like you said in the intro, on the VEOs, on state actors. Right. Because what, once he was, once it was clear that he had been taken captive by the Haqqani network, um, this was uncharted territory, right? For the for the casualty assistance office, for you, for the army, for the Bergdahl family, um, there was there a playbook that you were expected to follow after that, or did you have to make it up as you went along? No, no, no playbook existed. So mm-hmm. it was it was make it up as you go along, and and we'll get into that and talk a little bit more about the the capabilities the army has. But going back to the casualty assistance portion, uh, I I would say the army has the premier casualty assistance program in the world. They do an excellent job of supporting families when their soldiers are killed or die in the line of duty. Mm-hmm. And they have a lot of training that goes along with that. They have the casualty and mortuary affairs division that's run by the human resources command at Fort Knox that comes up with the policies and the procedures and the backbone for that. Then they spread out these casualty assistance centers throughout the world. And they're in charge of guiding that CAO through the entire process of supporting that family. And they know all the ins and outs of the benefits. And if anything comes up, you call them and they're there to help you through that process. And I've managed that program in Idaho for a few years and great feedback from everyone once when we, when we do that correctly. And, and that's most of the time. <laughs> so a lot of regulations and policy that go into that program. And like I said, I, I would, say hands down, that's probably the best program in the world for taking care of families right. uh, that their loved ones die. But getting into your point about the captive situation, no, there there is very minimal guidance in the CAO training or in any of the policies and regulations that say how you move forward. Mm-hmm. There is just the, the policy that says a casualty assistance officer, one, that's probably not a good term for the family to hear every time you talk with them. So may need to adjust that name in, in the future, but you, they're assigned a CAO and then they do a board. And in, in Bo's case, he was initially pronounced dust one, duty status whereabouts unknown. They conducted a board and which changed that status to missing captured. 
Mm-hmm. And that's, that's all that's out there. And then through that, I, through those five years, we ended up building a team and it became pretty extensive. And, and as we'll get into that. That's the gap I saw of how do we make day one look like year five mm-hmm. when we support those families? Because the, the thing that I can't, and we've talked about this and I keep wrapping my mind around is when you're dealing with a conflict that essentially uh, has no clear end date to it, right? There's no moment where there's like, okay, now we can exchange our prisoners. And at what point in the process did, or were you made aware, was anybody made aware of what the Haqqani Network was asking for in return for the release of Bo Bergdahl? And that, that changed throughout the five years and, and that we, we didn't know. We didn't know how this was going to end. In the beginning, we didn't know who had him, uh, what they were looking for. And so we had to prepare for all the different contingencies. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where the support to the family to me is the most important. We didn't know if the family was going to get a call from the captors themselves asking for, say, money in in return for Bo, or if they were going to contact the family, talk about a swap, or or if he was going to be rescued. So we didn't know how it was going to turn out. So we had to prepare the family for all the contingencies and make sure they were prepared uh, in in case they did get a call. Right. So did you, uh, when you talk about five years. Five years is a long time to do anything. Um, were there were there false alarms in those five years when you when you took the family around to speak to the the stakeholders? Um, was there a, was there sort of a pattern to what you did? Would you check in at specific intervals? Uh, how did you how did you filter out any information that may have come in to you or to them? And I think that was that was very deliberate by us on on how we treated the family, and I, I think most people might assume that as a casualty assistance officer, that all I do is provide information to the family, give them updates. If they have a question, I got to go back up the chain to find out that answer and try to give them uh, the best answer I can. In this case, the Army determined in the beginning that we're going to bring them in as part of the team. So when, when we do discussions, when we have meetings, they're there. So they got to see the behind the scenes process on what was going on in the whole of government. Hmm. So that's, and, and that was a, a conscious decision on the part of army leadership that they were not, they, they, and was that in part because they felt like this would keep the family from publicly uh, expressing any emotion or expressing any criticism that they would just bring them in to begin with? Did anybody ever tell you? Uh, what the motivation was by army uh, by army leadership to make that decision? I think we realized the importance of having them on the team because, mm-hmm. uh, like we talked about, we don't know what the captors are thinking, what maybe public statements made by the family are going to do to Bo while he's in captivity. Maybe changes treatment right. will it affect an operation that's going on right now to get Bo back? So having that linkage with the family and having them part of the team, we were able to. As, as Bob always said, he wanted as many irons in the fire as he could. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as a CAO, I was able to see what he was doing, what, what the military was doing, what the whole of government was doing, and make sure we worked together to make sure none of those uh, conflicted at some point and, and, and caused issues with his captivity. Right. Did the circumstances under which Bergdahl became a captive have any impact on the way the Army chose to treat his case? No, I would say definitely not. Mm-hmm. Uh Right. A lot of people, you could, you could read the background of, of Bo's captivity and, and much of what we're talking about today hasn't, isn't dealing with Bo 
how he became captured or about his captivity or when he came out of captivity. There's, there's a lot of articles out there with Time Magazine, Rolling Stone, the serial podcast that Bo was on himself. And so people can do their own research on, on the, the situation before and after, after captivity. But the people that were working to get Bo back and the team members were dedicated to getting him back. And you, you didn't see any, from my perspective, I didn't see anyone questioning uh, what Bo did or how he became captive in that recovery process. They were, they were very dedicated to get him back. And the senior leaders that, that we met, we met a lot of them all said the same thing. Our, our goal is to get Bo back mm-hmm. as soon as we can. And then the, the when he did return, right? Obviously, there was, as we said, you could, we can read the you can read the other stories, you can listen to the other podcasts. Even though, you know, we don't like to plug other podcasts here on a better piece, but you know, but hopefully people get in the habit of <laughs> of listening to other podcasts too. Um, but clearly, there was also controversy when he was finally released, and the question of the circumstances under which his he was released, and the way that was announced at the White House. And you and I have discussed how you know you were present um, whenever the Bergdahl family met with senior leadership, including when they met with the president when Bergdahl was released. Um, what was that like for you, sort of wanting to give advice to the Bergdahls, but also as a representative of the army? Well, hit on hit on two things with that comment. First, I think I think Bob and Janney got a little bit of a bad rap mm-hmm. yep. uh, by the American people. And if you look at at why they did the things they did, why they said the things they said, the articles that were published, the video that Bob Bergdahl made on YouTube in, it was, I believe, 2011 that he posted. If, if you look at all that and understand who he was trying to talk to, where his son was held captive at that point, I think you can understand why Bob did what he did. Mm-hmm. And you can understand maybe why he, he grew his beard, why he would talk in Pashtu. He didn't know if his son that might be the only language that he can hear while he's there. It might be the only language he speaks at that point. He didn't know. So he, he tried to talk in both English and Pashtu to make sure his son was able to get that message and also the captors. Right. So definitely talking directly to the captors about Bo. Right. And so when, when that last day happened, when we, when we got the phone call and the president called the Bergdahls personally to let him know that, that Bo was on a helicopter coming back, uh, we, we got called and, and told we were going to go to the White House to meet the president. And at that time, it was it was very joyous. In fact, when it happened, I was in a hotel because I got a heads up that things were going on. So I was told to go to their hotel and wait in the lobby. They were out on a walk. And Bob and Janie got the call from the president on their walk, walked into the hotel. And of course, tears, hugs, high fives. It was, it was a great occasion. Big hotel in D.C., one of the most popular ones, TV screens in the lobby, and all of a sudden, Bo Bergdahl's face comes on the TV screen, and Janie yells out, that's my son, that's my son. And at first, no one cared. It was it was a joyous moment, and then all of a sudden, I realized we're in a very popular hotel in D.C. We better get out of this lobby before all the reporters <laughs> get here. So luckily, our, our FBI counterparts picked us up and, and took us to another hotel, but that kind of started that started that day. From there on, we we then went to the White House where they met with uh, the president and a lot of his senior staff. And going into the White House, it was high fives and hugs, a, a very joyous occasion. 
and and we can see how that changed within the 24 to 48 hours after that but but for that brief moment the family had that relief that their son was coming home had a great discussion with the president and the officials that were in there and uh, actually got to make a few comments walking out into the rose garden which they weren't prepared for right uh, so it was a spur of the moment the president asked why don't you just say a few words and and they did and again, Bob, like like we talked about, he was talking to his son. Right. So he wanted to make sure his son knew he loved him. I uh, did talk in past to again, making sure that that Bo knows and, and can understand what he's saying. Right. So that that for that period, very joyous. And we actually flew back to Idaho the next day and had another uh, another gathering in the auditorium on base at uh, Gowan Field. The reporters came out and Bob. Bob again talked and, and and it was joyous and he thanked everyone for their support getting Bo back. But hours after that, yellow ribbons and Haley started coming off trees because of the politics behind the prisoner swap and, and they didn't get to celebrate publicly after that point. See. It's uh and and for you, for your experience with it, clearly you are you are still in contact with uh with the Bergdahls. Um, what did, what happened to your relationship to the case? Like from the moment Bo was returned to the U S right. You as the CAO is, is, are you do officially sort of hand the case files over to somebody else and it's somebody else's job or what is your role after that? No. So my role, once Bo was recovered, I stayed in Haley, uh, their hometown for a while as the reintegration was going on, working with the family, uh, being that liaison between all the government agencies and them, and then the reintegration site down at Fort Sam Houston. And we maintained good contact for a few years after that. It kind of broke apart after that. We just didn't talk a whole lot, texted every now and then, and, and an occasional call. And once I started this research project, I reached back out to them. And and Bob and Jenny have both been on this ever since. They, they, they're paying attention to what's going on in Afghanistan and Pakistan. They're talking to a lot of senior officials still on how to improve this process and how to support families in the future. And I know Bob would, if, if there's another captive soldier, he would call that family immediately to offer his support and guidance on how they got through those five years. Interesting. Well, so since you mentioned your research project, I'd like to pivot to that. So in what ways have your, uh, or has your experience in the Bergdahl case, uh, has it informed the work that you're doing on this strategy research project here at the Army War College. Yeah, definitely. And like I said in the beginning, the casualty program itself is, is a great program. I, I wouldn't want to change anything with that program itself. But the captive part of that, of what do we do when a soldier's captive, is where, where I saw the gaps. And I look at my assignment on day one compared to year five mm -hmm. and what I learned during those five years and how is the next casualty assistance officer going to know what we did during those five years? Because there is no playbook. There's there's a lot of great organizations, but like I talked about, none of them are tasked directly by policy to support that family other than the CAO. Mm -hmm. So my goal with the research is just to show the institutional knowledge, what we learned in the five years, document that, but hopefully move to some policy changes where another organization may not be HRC at Fort Knox. It may be the Joint Personnel Recovery Agency, or it may be Army South who does the reintegration programming, have a bigger role in providing that initial support to that family. Because mm -hmm. when you look at it, 
right off the bat contacted by media? How does a family react when when media is knocking on their door at day one? And we talked about if this isn't a POW situation, VEOs, non-state actors, held hostage, criminal organizations, some things the family could say could impact that soldier. And so we need to provide them resources immediately. And, and in our case, we got lucky. There was a public affairs officer in Idaho that jumped right in with the family and supported them from the beginning. Uh, after that, then I came on and the, and the team kept growing. And uh, I'm looking at a, a photo of the team right now when we're at, at CENTCOM that's sitting right next to me. And, and part of that team, we, we had the FBI get involved. We had a specialist from the Office of Victim Assistance and they provide supports to victims of crime. Mm-hmm. And they came in with a huge amount of resources and knowledge on how to support victims of crime and support families. And then also we got a SEER psychologist from JPRA. How, how do I know as a CAO what that captive is going through, what that soldier is going through in captivity? That SEER psych was able to talk to the family and, and tell them, this is what I think your, your son is going through. And this is and and would help the family out in, in that process. Then we also had uh, the location where he was uh, captured was in the CENTCOM AOR. So we had a planner from the team at CENTCOM that would go with us to all our meetings, and he would provide updates uh, on what they're doing, and then also be the liaison back to that that commander on what the Bergdahls are doing, who they're talking to, what government officials. Uh, they've run into and that way it gives them a heads up because usually after we would make a trip to DC and talk to congressmen, we would talk to senior officials, CENTCOM would get a lot of phone calls or requests for what is going on with with Bo Bergdahl and how close are you to getting him back. And so by having that good relationship with the family and all the teams that were there, it, it worked out very well in our case. And so that that team grew from the initial public affairs officer and CAO in the beginning to this this huge team to support the family by year five, and and you talked about how did we how did we know when to do these trips, yeah, and how did we know uh, when to go to DC, when to go to CENTCOM, and we'd go we'd go often, we'd go to DC at least yearly, we go to CENTCOM at least yearly on on the trips. They would talk to White House staff. They talked to the Secretary of Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Commander at CENTCOM. From there, we'd go to Capitol Hill and talk to congressmen. From there, we'd go to the State Department. From there, they'd go to the International Red Cross. And so very, very extensive meetings when we make these trips. But it all revolved around their confidence in what we were doing to get Bo back. Right. So when their their confidence was getting challenged and maybe some time has passed since we we spoke about recovery efforts or what the government's doing to get Bo back, they would start, maybe I need to throw some more irons in the fire, do some more things. And and there's a good book, I, I, I won't get into all of it, but there's a good book that details a lot of that, what what Bob was what Bob and Jenny were working on during the, those five years and how everything played together. And that's uh the book's called American Cipher. It's by uh, Matt Farwell and Michael Ames, and a, a great book to get in a little more details and some firsthand accounts that I won't get into, but you, you can read about. Sure. And that may that may clear some some things up the people that are interested in this subject. Right. Well, and so I guess that that gets back to the idea of what kinds of modifications or policy changes or structural changes uh, do you do you explore in your research, or that would you consider for thinking about how how in the future 
the army or the the DOD more broadly could deal with this kind of uh, problem of 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 capt of captured service members. I was especially thinking of the starting with the ideas maybe not have the word casualty in the name of the person who's doing the visitations. Yes, that that's definitely number one on the list is, is to change that name and the term for the the officer that's going to support the family. One is to look who are we going to choose to have this assignment. And how are we going to get that person trained and ready to go and uh, and do that job, which isn't in any manual on how to do it. And Army's real good at putting a lot of manuals out there, a lot of how-tos, uh, but this is not one they, they have information on. So who's the right person to, to become the assistance officer for the family? How Who's going to train them? Because there's currently no training. And then who's going to provide that backbone of support when the family asks questions they don't have the answer to? And I think two great organizations, Joint Personnel Recovery Agency, and then uh, the U.S. Army South, who has the mission to reintegrate soldiers after coming out of captivity. Two great organizations, I think, can that can jump into that process and provide that support right off the bat. And I talked, I talked to Bob, Bob and Janie last week, and and I asked Bob, and we we talked about in the past. I go, if a Chinook goes down tomorrow, mm-hmm. full of soldiers, and they become captive, kind of. Uh, in a situation like where Bo was captive in that area of the world, do you think we can provide support to the families like we provided support to you? Yeah. And right off the bat, he said, no, that's, there was way too much support we received. I don't know how you could do that for that many families. And I said, exactly. We need to come up with a scalable solution to, to fit if, it, if it's a larger captivity event. And so looking at that Chinook scenario – how do we support those families and what agency is going to coordinate between all those families? Hmm. And so that, that's the gap in my, uh, from my perspective is that that CAO doesn't have that leverage at that point and doesn't have the knowledge of those agencies out there. So if we can pinpoint on who's going to take lead, who's going to set the stage for what information is given to those families, the meetings with senior leaders. If we did the meetings we did with Bob and Janie Bergdahl in DC with all 30 families, that would tie up the government right. forever. forever it, it, yeah. a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of resources right. and a lot, of, a lot of meetings with senior officials uh, went into that. And I, I don't think when you're talking about a casualty event, at a greater scale where these soldiers become captive, I, I don't think we can provide the same support that we we provided, at least on that scale. And so you're thinking that it would require both uh, sort of deeper training of the people who would end up with these assignments, but also sort of broader preparation within the existing agencies to be able to communicate with each other. Yeah. And this, this doesn't happen often. Mm-hmm, so right. to tr- constantly train soldiers to be a CAO for someone that's held captive, I, I don't think is realistic. I don't right. think we're going to keep continuous training going on. And I, I wouldn't impose that on anyone. So I think more of on-the-job training. So mm-hmm. when a soldier becomes captive, I, I think it's a still, uh, still a good thing for HRC to assign a casualty assistance officer for that family. But right after that event happens that there are there are people from both Joint Personnel Recovery Agency, U.S. Army South, maybe maybe the FBI, maybe some other agencies that descend on that CAO and give them that initial training on, on here's what it looks like when, when a soldier's in captivity. Here's what the family uh, may expect over the next, could be days, weeks, in this case, five years. 
and how we we manage that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's the way to go forward by policy appoint appoint organizations to support that casualty assistance officer, appoint someone to provide a public affairs officer, provide, you know, JPRA with providing some seer psychologists, some support on that level to the family so they can understand what's what's going on. Right. Full disclosure, right? Uh, Colonel Hickey is a, a student in my seminar here at the Army War College, but I am not the advisor to his strategy research project. But I, uh, I know that the, uh, uh, you know, eventually you're going to finish that paper. Um, uh, I'm not going to say when. I'm not going to put any pressure on you there. But um, <laughs> hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Um, what do you plan to do after you complete your year at the Army War College? Do you, and and do you intend to remain engaged with this particular question? I do. I'm hoping my research here and this this podcast, an article I'm writing, my research project, at a minimum is out there and it's searchable. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. even if we don't change policy, we don't change procedures, the next assistance officer that gets assigned a case like this can at least look out there and find some information on it. This is what the last guy did, and hopefully this, <laughs> that would help him. And so I, I am working with Bob and Janny. They they're advocates for this change. They they saw the difference between year one and year five and the and the support they got over those five years, how it increased. And hindsight, they you know, they wish they had that support on day one, give giving them some of that guidance. And and I don't blame anyone. Uh, everyone did a great job. That team that came together was very dedicated and they weren't asked to to provide all the support they did. They just came out and, and gave that support from the FBI to JPRC and our Army South. So at a minimum, I want to document what happened, the the good, the bad, uh, changes that can be made, and, and at least have that institutional knowledge out there. Because a lot of the people that were on this case, it was eight years ago he was recovered. A few of the team members are now retired. Right. I, know, I know one of the SEER psychologists that I worked with, he now works with the FBI. He's no longer in the military. And so a lot of movement mm-hmm. uh, with, with with the personnel that we're working on that. So I, I think the documenting of this is is the first step and then working towards a solution, uh, maybe with HRC, uh, to change some of those policies to, to better affect the, the, the families of, of captive soldiers. Right. Well, Kevin Hickey, I, I look forward to seeing the results of your research, and I hope that you're right, that it does help to broaden our understanding and that people can reach out to you both by looking at your research and uh, and to see what uh, what you have to say about it. Uh, and that we can, you know, one, one doesn't want to hope that there will be future Bergdahl-like cases, but one can only hope that if such cases do emerge, that the Army will be ready and able to help the family and to help the recovered soldier. But for, Yes, and and, yeah. and as uh, Bob Bergdahl would say, you know, we, we need to help that family get through the alphabet soup, as he would call it. <laughs> all those three-letter agencies, all the acronyms we use, the, the bureaucracy of the system, that family needs to understand that. And I right. think if we, if we do well in this program and with these changes, I, I think families will get a better understanding on day one of who's involved in uh, recovering uh, their soldier, but also supporting them during the time they're in captivity. Time in captivity. And because in every case, these are human beings. And uh, if we're serious about, uh, you know, the I would say the first, the first word in human resources command is human. And so we do want to remember that we are dealing with, with people, people who are important 
to us uh, as a service and certainly important to their families that we want to bring home. Kevin Hickey, thanks for coming on A Better Peace to talk about your research and sharing your insights. Congratulations on your work so far. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate it. It's great to have you. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and send us suggestions for future programs. Please, you should uh, subscribe to A Better Peace. If you have not yet subscribed to A Better Peace, I hope that you are thinking very hard about your life choices and deciding to make better ones. Um, and after you have subscribed to A Better Peace, please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice because that is how other people can find out about us. We're always interested in widening the community for communications, for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you to our next one. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.